Upper Mount Samiesville Studios in Samiesville, Pennsylvania comes the We Talk Games Interview Starcade, where we skim the top of the bean curd to make wonderful interview tofu. I am your host, Wiggly, and on the line, your other host, Kyle Von Kubik. Moving colorful blocks. Yes, that is that's what, what I'm doing right now. And that's what we're going to feature today. No way! All the best interviews from We Talk Games in one place in a little digestible size with a little behind-the-scenes backstory. I had seen, we, I think we both saw, the little featurette from the UK from Tetris with Love or Russia with Tetris or from Russia with Blocks. I don't exactly remember what it was called. But this one fella was in the center of all that, in the hurricane, if you will, violent for the license to bring Tetris uh, to the United States of America and to the world. Yes. And that man was the handsome Hawaiian Hank Rogers. Hank's a very interesting guy, a humanitarian, a frequent visitor of Burning Man, just a real interesting cat, and uh, he was a pleasure to have on the show, as always, as all of our guests are. Oh, yeah. Uh, and But there's just a lot of interesting history there as far as how he acquired that license and how he was able to pull it out of Russia from behind the Iron Curtain and bring it to the entire world. And more than that, too, because we found out that he actually made games and, you know, he's in the game developing business. So, so not just a, a broker of sorts. No, no. Very invested in the uh, furtherment of game design and the video game industry. And creator of one of my favorite iterations of Tetris ever. A hatress? A close. <laughs> All right, let's find out. Now! Joining us from the most beautiful place on the planet Earth, Hawaii! Hawaii, go! The handsome Hank Rogers. Hank, thanks for being on the show today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, you're one of the reasons we're having you on is because you're the most buff man in video game entertainment today. Buff? Yeah. <laughs> so how would you know that? Uh, I saw you uh, in that, that, uh, that uh, great BBC documentary, Tetris from Russia with Love. Yeah, but I, I didn't show any of my non-existent abs in that uh, interview. <laughs> Uh, maybe they airbrushed them on later in post. I don't know their technology there. <laughs> we thought okay. it would be great to have you on for our listeners. Because of your pivotal involvement with the video game drama of Intrigue uh, that Tetris was, and to help celebrate the 25th anniversary of Alexei Pajipnov's Tetris. But before we delve into that, I'm very interested in clearing up a bit of the history of BPS, because... I know that you used to be involved with Bulletproof Software, and, and I later found out that you, you started that in Japan. And now you have Blue Planet Software, both BPS. You evidently wanted to save on the monogram towels. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about how Bulletproof and, and Blue Planet all came about? Okay, so I was in, uh, in Japan in 1983 when personal computers that were able to play games first came out. And I decided that I would uh, uh, follow my college passion, which is playing Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, my major, which was computer science, 
and I made the first role-playing game in 1984, I mean, 83. I tried to find a publisher, it was unsuccessful, well, actually SoftBank, at the time, a distributor of, of uh, computer games and computer software, uh, told me, you know, all you need to do is have your wife answer the phone, make your own company. So, um, at the time, Japanese companies were snapping up acronyms like ASCII or Login or whatever for names of companies or magazines. Right. And BTS is still not taken. That's bits per second. Yep. And I thought yep. that would be a lasting uh, acronym. And it's still, in fact, people still talk about BTS. I picked Bulletproof Soft because I thought I was going to do business soccer, which I never did. That Bulletproof Software, I, I wrote the first couple of games. It was the number one game in 1984, and uh, then I realized I couldn't program day and night like I was did when I was younger, and uh, I started traveling around the world looking for games to bring to Japan. I see. And so I'd travel to uh, London, to uh, Chicago, to uh, Vegas, and it was in Vegas in 1988 at the Consumer Electronics Show that I first saw Tetris. Right, right, and uh, I will—I'll catch people up a little bit on uh, what all went down if they're not familiar with the drama. It's 1984, Iron Curtain, Cold War, Communists, Russia, it's all happening, it's all still in full effect. Out of Moscow's computer center, which was a very serious, military-oriented, space-oriented, number-crunching computer think tank organization, comes Alexei Pajanov's digital pentominoes-inspired puzzle game. It's distributed underground, overground, but only within Russia. And, uh, you know, this is all property of state. There's no capitalism involved here. Robert Stein sees this in, in a Hungarian machine in, in the back room somewhere, and he brokers the game to Marisoft. The Russian government agency, Elorg, steps in. They contact Stein and Marisoft and inform them that they've been selling their game illegally. Stein gets Elorg to sign off on licensing for the game for the Mac and the PC. Marisoft approaches Atari Tengen for video game console release and distribution. In 1988, you see Tetris running at an Atari booth at a tech show. And you secure the Japanese PC and Japanese video game distribution rights for Tetris. Somewhere along the line, though, Elorg wasn't getting their royalties. And then in 1989, Nintendo was getting ready to launch their Game Boy, and uh, they wanted Tetris as a pack-in. And what were your connections at the time to Nintendo that they knew to come to you to, as like a broker or, or whatever you would consider yourself? Um, how did they know yeah. to come to you? Well, I, first of all, I was the one who brought uh, Tetris to Nintendo in Japan as a publisher first. Right, right. And so, so Nintendo Japan, knew, by that time, they knew me very well. I had a personal relationship with Mr. Yamauchi in Japan. But also I had a relationship with Nintendo of America at the time because uh, of all things, I sold them two million joysticks. Oh. It was, uh, you know, a side business. I'm not in the hardware business, but they bought them and uh, I had somebody manufacture them and it worked out. So I became good friends with Mr. Arakawa and it was with Mr. Arakawa that I negotiated the deal for the packing of Tetris on Game Boy. At the time, it was really fuzzy because... Uh, because there were a lot of people claiming that they had rights and they had connections and so on and so forth. In fact, I had had a uh, letter of intent for various uh, platforms on, of Tetris, which it turned out those, the people that tried to sell them to me didn't actually have those rights. Right. Uh, so I said I would get on a plane, I would go to Moscow, and uh, that's exactly what I did in February of 1989. 
And you went to Moscow during a time when communism was in full effect. This was a socialist oh, yeah. government. This was not a free market or enterprise or anything like this. There was a lot of mistrust of, of foreigners. And you just show up without an appointment. I, I find this just an amazing bit of this of this drama. I mean, it's, it's such a thick mystery. But Two things help me here. Uh, one is my uh, passion for computer games. And, and this was just, for me, another adventure game. You know, go in there, talk to such and such a person, get such and such a hint, and then go someplace else, talk, talk to another person. So I was in the game. That's um, but the other thing was, I, <laughs> I was just naive. I didn't know what you weren't supposed to do. So I just got, I went there on a tourist visa and knocked on the door. And I, I mean, those guys collectively choked because nobody knocks on the door. Yeah. And in fact, there was, there was an investigation afterwards as to how the hell did I manage to get into the country and knock on that door? Because, you know, I'm not supposed to do any, I don't have the right to knock on doors if I'm in, in Moscow. Sure. But I did. Especially a company that specialized in, in science, uh, computer number crunching for space and war type of projects. They were the designated ministry for exporting software, which in their entire history, I don't think all of the rest of the business that they did amounted to the amount of business they did with Tetris. Oh, sure, sure. Now, you had originally tried to go through Robert Stein to get the license rights for the Game Boy, but then when you felt like he was giving you the runaround, he wasn't returning your calls, you decided to get on a plane, you went to Moscow yourself, you talked to Nikolai Belikov, and Nikolai Belikov accepted your offer for the console and handheld rights. And this ended up getting Nikolai Belikov in a little bit of hot water with the Russian government. Well, Nikolai Belikov was, uh, you know, in the short term, he was in a little bit of hot water, and the hot water was that Kevin Maxwell, who's the son of Robert Maxwell, if you remember him, he is the owner of the Mirror Group who spent $5 billion of his uh, employees' pension funds and jumped off the boat. Yeah. So at that time, at that time, Kevin Maxwell was in Moscow, and the same week that I was there, saying, give me the rights to, to uh, Game Boy Tetris. And so they were trying to, you know, backdoor me. Sure. And, um, and his method of operation was, you will listen to me because I've got the Politburo in my pocket. I mean, my dad wrote Gorbachev's memoirs. You know, if you know what's good for you. In fact, his dad had KGB connection, for Christ's sake. Wow. It turned out that he, 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 uh, he burned the KGB for a pile of gosh at the end of the day. I mean, he didn't just lose his, his uh, employees' money. He also lost, lost a bunch of KGB money. At that time... There, a serious pressure came from the Politburo to, on to Mr. Belikov. What the hell are you doing? And to the point where nobody in his ministry or in, in, in the law, Electronic Technica, that was the name of the ministry, was talking to him. He was like a dead man. Mm-hmm. And uh, he managed to get through it. So I got to give him credit for that. You know, he, uh, he stuck it through because it was a, you know, it was Perestroika and Glasnost and Gorbachev has said, you know what, I, I want people to go and start businesses and do things, you know, in a different way, not just, you know, political pressure from the top. And he took that to heart and got away with it. And I think it, it comes through in the documentary that it was the fact that you were coming at it from a more honest approach. And you also befriended Alexei. How did that come about? Okay, so I walked into a lord, and I met I met somebody coming down the stairs. Turned out that was Mr. Belikov, 
uh, I said, I'd like to meet with uh, some people from Inlord to talk about the licensing Tetris for Game Boy. And uh, I showed him my my Nintendo 8-bit Japanese box, and he said, he looked at it and said, we never licensed Tetris on a console, by the way. And I'm going, I'm, I'm like choking, you know. <laughs> Shoot, here I am in, Ro- in um, Soviet Union. I'm, the, I'm pirate number one uh, of their intellectual property. What are they going to do, send me to a gulag? <laughs> anyway, the next day, there was a meeting, and I, I made it the next day because I figured they needed to get whoever they needed to get into the room. Otherwise, I would be talking to the wrong people. And and in that next meeting, Alexei was there. And guess what? I mean, uh, a room full of commies and two game designers. I mean, we we had something to talk about immediately. Sure, sure. I don't think Alexei had ever met a, a game designer from another country before. And so we immediately hit it off. Fantastic. Tetris and the Game Boy, I mean, how perfectly did those two technologies go together? Oh, uh, they were, that was perfect. I mean, you, you, you can't imagine a better coupling. I mean, Game Boy made Tetris and Tetris made Game Boy. Nintendo and I have been best friends ever since as a result of, of that deal. 30 million packed in copies of Tetris. It's, on Game Boy, uh, yeah. I, I, in fact, with with that black and white Game Boy, the, the original or the original four four tones, I guess it was. Uh, I don't think there's there's any better title except maybe Faceball Two Thousand. <laughs> oh my gosh! How did you dig that one up? Uh, oh, I, I, I remember reading the mags, and I mean that that had a lot of play. That that was a really pushed title by a lot of the the video game mags at the time, and that was that was under the BPS label as well. Well, it was a, the, the problem with it is Nintendo went with the wrong, what do you call it, cable. They, their, their docking system was to have a little hub in the middle between four Game Boys, and you all plug into the hub. And what the hub did was send an interrupt to all the Game Boys and say, give me information now. And so you get this, this interrupt happening, I don't know how many times per second. Well, it slowed the game down ridiculously. We had our own system, which was a daisy chain system, which said basically when you get a signal from the guy to your left, you process it, then you send it off to the guy to your right. And this daisy chain system meant that you could have, I don't know, 10 people in a circle all playing the same game. Much faster than with the little stupid hub. And so we never, I mean, multiplayer games just never took off on Game Boy as a result. Yeah, it was it was pretty much uh, limited to two. I think that was that was the most you could get out of that. Uh, you also had a lot of other uh, very prominent titles, including one of my favorite games for the Super Famicom. And I'm just I have no idea why this has never been brought to the Virtual Console or at least some other platform. And that is Tetris Battle Gaiden. Tetris Battle Gaiden is very interesting. Um, you know, we tried to make a, a game, a, a Tetris game for gamers mm-hmm. by adding adding magic items. And magic items, there were I think there were six or seven different characters you could play, and each character had two attack items and two defense items. And so, who you, who you played against who, you know, so it would it would change the way the game gets played. Oh yeah. Those magic items resurfaced. A lot of those magic items resurfaced in Korea uh, when uh, NHN or Hun Game uh, did Tetris on uh, online, up to six players. Okay. And again, there there are, there are magic items involved, and you capture the magic item, and you get to use them against one of the other five players. So that those ideas are not gone; they're just uh, sleeping a little bit. And it was kind of a core game. Because 
you know, for an ordinary person like a, like a housewife who, you know, by the way, that's our core demographic, that's a lot of stuff to remember. Right. You know, to remember is no problem, but uh, uh, the simplicity of Tetris, you know, that you don't have to remember things that are not happening on the screen at the moment, I mean, that is the beauty of the game. Uh, so the magic items, yes, they are very, they appeal to gamers, but that's a, uh, a smaller subset of our core demographic or, or our core player. I see. And, and now I do see that, uh, that EA is involved. How is that relationship working out? Oh, it's great. You know, I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm pretty good at relationships. I'm still good <laughs> friends with Nintendo after having worked with them for 20 years. I mean, that's what, that's what business is all about, is creating and maintaining relationships. What, what happened was, around 2001, actually, uh, I, I was looking for a licensee for mobile phones, and the, the numbers that I was getting out of the U.S. market were kind of ridiculously small. I mean, like, more than an or, order of magnitude smaller than the, the deals that I was pulling out of Japan. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm thinking, there's something wrong here. People just don't get what's going to happen, because it was already happening in Japan. Right. So I said, well, shoot, you know, if people don't get it collectively, that means there's a business opportunity, and I started my own company. And at that time, here in Hawaii, I started a company called Blue Lava Wireless, and uh, it was a game, company making games for mobile phones. Three years into it, um, we had the number one game in the space, uh, and uh, Jamdat had gone public. You know Jamdat? I've heard of them, yes. I remember seeing their logo on a lot of my mobile games. Yeah, so Jamdat uh, went public, and basically all the money they had and all the stock they could give me, they gave me so they could get my company and Tetris. I see. What they actually got was a 15-year license to Tetris. And uh, then a year into that, well, they bought me, they bought my company. A year into that, Electronic Arts bought them, and so Electronic Arts became our licensee. Oh, very good. Fantastic. Great. So a big fish eating a small fish, a medium-sized fish eating a small fish, and then a gigantic fish eating a medium-sized fish. <laughs> well, that, that's uh, quite fitting, I guess, if you're surrounded by fish. <laughs> and with that, is there anything big on the horizon? Yeah, well, you know, I'm look, by the way, uh, when I look outside my office here, I'm, what I'm looking at is Honolulu Harbor. I see Aloha Tower, and I see a, a horizon uh, to die for. Out my window, and what I see on that horizon is I see professional Tetris players, or professional video game players, and uh, I think Tetris because of the way it has evolved. Most video games have come and gone, and and are are memories. Tetris has been around for twenty five years now, yeah. and so it's taken on the a, a whole different and a different existence from other video games, and so. Uh, I think it's the first virtual sport. So we are expecting to have Tetris Cup, uh, Tetris Cups in the future. Um, you know, a few times a year, or maybe every weekend, like the like the PGA, and then have professional Tetris players duke it out and uh, and have it be you know hopefully someday in the Olympics because it's it is a sport. It's a comp- uh, it's a competitive competitive activity, mm-hmm. and uh, why shouldn't mental activity fall into that category? 
Yeah, agreed. Uh, that's something I think we always try to focus on on We Talk Games. At least I hope that we do. How what we once considered traditional classical video gaming has truly blurred any lines to what it was once associated with and now has become part of the human condition. And I'm, I always find it an incredible pleasure when I find out new things via these interviews that I had no idea about before. When I always thought about Hank Rogers, I thought, you know, here's this really, really friendly, outgoing, and honest salesman, if you will. But to know that you came up into the video game industry via a passion for video game programming, and you actually programmed yourself, made a lot of games, made a lot of successful games, and now continue that passion, trying to bring great titles to the rest of the world. That's when I truly understand I am involved with something special. So thank you, Hank Rogers, for being a part of We Talk Games. Tell Al Harrington I said hello, and uh, thank you again for joining. <laughs> That's way before my time. I've only lived here seven seven years. Okay. All right. Well, but I'll find him and I'll say hello to him for you. <laughs> say hello, Right on, man. <laughs> okay. Thank you so very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, and aloha from Hawaii. Bye now. Bye. That man is handsome. Still hopeful for the video game competition in the Olympics. I know a lot of the people that we've interviewed on our show are still pushing for video games to be part of the Olympic Games. Walter Day is holding that torch. I know that. Oh, man. And all, all those fellas from those movies. Hey, Wiggly, I got to tell you. Yes. Before, I was moving around colorful blocks. Now, I'm moving around colorful tiles. Tiles? Are they making any type of clacking noise? They're clicking and clacking <laughs> down see. the track. Yeah, so on the other side of the story, of course, was Atari that uh, and Tengen, specifically, that went forward on producing billions of cartridges. <laughs> <laughs> Illegally! <laughs> and then they found out that, hey, guess what? You don't have the license for it, and now you have to uh, dump all this stuff. And, boy, I remember the two-player version of Tengen's Tetris just being a fantastic version. A couple of them leaked, I guess, uh, found their way to store shelves, and then they were going for tons of loot. Even back then, when it first came out, they were going for hundreds of dollars. I remember this whole debacle, but I didn't know the backstory. Right. Let's find out about the creator of Clax. Real interesting note, first guest we had from Japan. Right! And that boy, uh, my uh, the bags under my eyes knew that. Yeah, we, you interviewed him at what three o'clock in the morning? Yeah, or it was something? two or three o'clock. Yeah, yeah. Three o'clock was Taito, oh, okay. and that's the one where we had HR in the room, and you know the president, yeah. <laughs> and everyone's listening in on the conference call. I really had to be on my toes, and I was like, uh, <laughs> uh I don't know. I turned into Stinky all of a sudden. (laughs) Sounds a lot like Stinky. Let's find out right from the mouth of the Acker Monster, Dave Ackers. Ichiban! First call to Japan. Let's get David Akers on. This is great. Clax. Numazu, Japan! Ohio! Ohio! Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, Well, I I guess it's uh, morning over there. Here it's right after the Dog Whisperer, which I'm glad I got to watch. But there it's 8.07. Right, right, 807. Fantastic. 
the reason that we have you on a show, number one, because you made one of the greatest games of all time, but uh, that's besides the point. But you share an entanglement with Tetris, Atari, Midway, and even Amiga programming. That's all come into play over the past two episodes of We Talk Games. And you're most well-known for what might have been considered a Plan B at the time. I don't know. But you turn that opportunity into one of the most fun action puzzle, instantly cross-platform, award-winning, and successful titles of all time. I think I named everything that it was. And perhaps, um, best of all, it was something new. Uh, so what I'd like to know right now, start right off, um, we, we had uh, Hank Rogers on the show earlier. He was, of course, responsible for bringing Tetris to consoles and handheld devices. And uh, most of the Tetris drama was brought up, brought to light by the BBC documentary Tetris from Russia with Love. But we didn't hear anything from what was going on behind the scenes at Atari. And you, now you were working for Atari at the time? Right. right. And what was it like? behind the scenes from a programmer what was going on with the programmers what was going on from your point of view uh well atari we believed we had bought the rights to a tetris right and so we made a, a arcade version and we made a home version very and, good uh, versions the, the tangan versions were two player right out the door yeah and the, yeah, the arcade version was very was a very nice version, and very fun to play, and it had a very very inexpensive board, so it had really good profit margins for us. I see, I see. Now, were you a programmer at this time? Uh, I, I was a programmer. Okay. I came in. I joined the Escape from the Planet of the Robot Monsters team. Right, great team, great game. But the next, oh, thank you. So next door to us was uh, uh, the Tetris team. So we kind of watched them. I see make this game in a short period of time and then it was uh, it was very successful in the arcades so after we finished escape we thought we want to do something quick like that sure sure gotcha but mark pierce he's he's just started drawing uh, different uh pictures of game very colorful games without an idea of what the gameplay was just draw things that look like games and then he ultimately he came out with the idea of clacks. Oh, okay. So it's like brainstorming, and I do this when I write songs. I'll just I'll write titles of songs, and maybe I'll breathe a song into there. So he was just coming up with game ideas, and how how for, fully along was it developed before you got involved? Because I mean, I play a lot of puzzle games. I have a pretty uh-huh. good imagination. I can envision a lot of odd things. Most puzzle games I could I could look at, and they, they make a lot of linear sense. But I would uh-huh. never have been able to envision that game scenario of clacks. There's a conveyor belt, domino-like tiles tumble down the conveyor instead of being conveyed down, I guess. Then you can stack your loading bin at the end of the belt and then drop the tiles trying to line up three of the same color, but you could also do five in a row and then even maybe the Reigns Revenge or something, Uh, but you could also do the five in a row and make combos or you could flip the tile back up if you don't like what's going on, and then there's the wild tile as well, and P.S., People will also be able to pick this up immediately and understand it. How does that happen? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I went on vacation for a week, and then Mark, the idea kind of formed in his mind, Mark Pierce. Okay. And and so then when he came back, he told me about it, and he was going to go on vacation. Ah. Uh, So I, over the weekend, I wrote a program in Amiga Basic, just so I could play the game in a very blocky form. And then I showed that to Mark, and we tuned it a bit before he went on vacation. Okay. 
and he gave me a set of graphics I could use for the escape uh, escape uh, hardware. So while he was on vacation, I got it working. And as soon as I had a working version, people would come by the lab and start playing it. And so by the time Mark came back, there were people lined up, you know, playing the game in our lab. That's fantastic. It just comes off as a game that would have gone through multiple, multiple iterations before it became something like Clax. I mean, how, when when did the 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 flip flinger come in? That if you don't like a tile, flip it back up. How when did that come along in the, this process? Well, I think on, on the joystick we had uh, left and right, moved you left and right, and down uh, made it speed up. So we went, what do we do with up? I see. Kind of the, the last position and we because we had people coming to the lab every day we would just try ideas and we would quickly get feedback on it and so people people liked that idea although at first at first we would throw the throw the uh, tile all the way to the end of the ramp okay and people got confused. They thought we'd thrown the tile away, and then all of a sudden, many tiles were coming at once. And they, well, what's this about? <laughs> I see, I see. And so marketing said, to just get rid of this feature. It's too confusing. We knew as players that it was it was you know really cool. It was yeah. really an important part of the gameplay. So we we changed it to be halfway back, and then people could see the tile. Oh, that's the one I threw up there. Right on, right on, and and also putting in warps to the game, uh, and and the ability to to stack up five and and make these complex patterns to like clear the entire clax uh, uh, play section with just one dump of of the uh, the loading bin. Loading bin, yeah, okay. <laughs> How complex is? I mean, it's so complex, and yet you could pick it right up and play it. it it's 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 an odd juxtaposition, but I, I mean, how? yeah, we just discovered you could play it on different, many different levels. You could just try to make threes in a row and and, and meet whatever the goal was, right. or you could do these patterns. Very good. Well, just as simple as that is is how it came along, and of course, uh, like you said, you programmed this in just a little over a few weeks, I guess. Well, we we got it working over a few okay. weeks, and then at, at the, what they did at that time is we would build a custom hardware for every arcade game, so we could have the minimum number of components. Gotcha. And and so they once once they approved the project. And they redesigned the hardware, and then we had to move everything over to the new hardware. Now, you mentioned that other employees would stop down and play this. We hear this a lot with very addicting puzzle games. People <laughs> going off their breaks, coming down, and just wasting their time playing these games. Uh, did any other game developers stop down to play it? Just about everybody would come over at, at lunchtime or other free time and play the game. And so people people got really good, and they developed some patterns. Okay. Uh, yeah, like Lyle Rains from who had done the Asteroids, uh, he he had uh, he made a whole bunch of patterns, and he he wrote a memo about describing the different patterns and how to get the highest score on clacks. Ah, and that was Rains' revenge. And one of my favorite parts about clacks has to be the sound, the sound samples. In fact, the rumor is that you named the game after hearing the sounds that the tile made as they were tumbling down the board. Yeah, we thought a click. Click clack, click clack, click clack was our vision of how it would sound. I see, I see. Okay, and any other interesting stories about the implementation of the sound chip for this game? Yeah, well, at the time we had a standard sound board. 
Okay. And it, it could have as many as three chips. There was a FM chip that played music. Sure. And then a sound effects chip that did digitized sounds. And then a, there was a talking chip that did a, a robotic voice. That was a, usually a separate board, but we were going to put all those... We're going to put the sound on the one board to make it very inexpensive. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they told us you you could only have one of the chips. Oh. You could have uh, you could have music or you could have sound effects. And so we we talked it over and we decided it would be more fun to have the digitized sound effects. Definitely. And how did the the sound recording go? Now those are samples. That's not speech synthesis. That was actually samples, or was it speech synthesis? It was samples. Okay. And any good stories about the the lady that recorded? the samples or yeah a, a friend of our our sound engineer and oh, okay. a very nice she had a very nice voice and so he would he would try to use her whenever possible i think okay any other any other games that you could recall that she was part of the stun runner i think oh oh okay oh great great i remember one day uh they just uh, mark went through the halls and just gathered anyone who wasn't busy and we all went into the sound room, and we did the crowd right, sounds. Right, the claps and the awes and stuff like that. And I've, I've been liberally putting those samples in between bits of this interview, uh, which you will be able oh, to hear great. post. <laughs> <laughs> did Atari know that they were, they were going to have this massive hit on their hands? Did they, they go aggressively at this? I mean, obviously, this game also has seen more system releases than just about any other title. I mean, first, first it came out for all uh, the, the consoles at the time, three major consoles at the time, the NES, the Genesis, TurboGrafx-16. Then it was released also for the Master System, the Atari 700. It has the distinction of being recognized as the last official 2600 title. Uh, it was released for the Lynx, Game Gear, Game Boy Color, Game Boy Computer systems, and then later as part of Midway's uh, treasure releases for the PlayStation, the Xbox, the GameCube, the PS2, and the PSP. Yeah. It's wow. unbelievable, all the different systems, yeah. I guess, I guess we'd had a, uh, we had a string of, like, not hit games, and so they really needed a hit at that time, so. Well, they got it. They got it. They were, they were behind us, yeah. Well, then again, you know, it, 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 it was the 90s, and... And uh, it was time. It was time for clacks. No doubt yeah. about it. How yeah, did Mark, Mark, Mark and I went on to do the Genesis version. Oh, okay. Very good. Very good. And so we you discovered did... we discovered that Namco had already done a version with Namco Japan for the Japanese Mega Drive version. Okay. How about the TG sixteen? That was my favorite system at the time. Uh, yeah, they. Uh, we sent videotapes to Japan. Okay. Like a week a week later. <laughs> This guy, uh, June Amanai, he had the version running on the Turbo Graphics. Wow, wow. Um, it was amazing, yeah. Very good. How did you get started in gaming? Because uh, you, you were actually involved with a couple of, of neat titles, and, and you actually moved around a little bit uh, during your programming career. Well, I started out, I, I worked at uh, Use Aircraft as an engineer. Oh, okay. And, and we actually worked on laser weapon systems. We had a joystick. They took a 707 and put a laser in, in it. And we had a joystick, and they would point at targets and shoot them with lasers and things like that. Wow, wow. Very good. But we spent, it seemed like in the government, we spent a lot of time doing uh, paperwork and documentation and more than the actual programming. <laughs> and uh, where I worked was a mile away from Mattel Electronics. Okay. So they had a big job fair, and I went there, and I, I got a job. So, 
And you started at Mattel in the early 80s, I guess? Yeah, 82. Okay. So at Mattel, you started to design in television games for the Atari 2600? I was hired in the Intellivision group. Okay. After, as soon as, about a week after I got there, they told us that they had a 2600 group. And, ah, ah, gotcha. And 2600 games, and I was always fascinated by the 2600. I'm very interested in your roller disco balloon darting game, Blowout, that never saw the light of day. Okay, that, that was a Keith Robinson's uh, uh, idea. And oh, okay. To make, they wanted to make party games that people could play at parties. Gotcha. And so, you know, it was an idea eventually, uh, you know, Mario... Mario Party type game. I they see. Had, uh, they had thought of. Yeah, you you pass the joystick around. You have two two uh, couples, and but you're this roller disco type of character. Did any of the, so? Did, how far along did you get on that game? Because I want to play a roller disco guy on the twenty six hundred, uh, popping uh, balloons with darts. Oh uh, yeah, well we didn't get very far. They okay. had it. They did it on the television. And then we were supposed to cover it on the 2600, but they got much farther on the Intellivision than we did. I see. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and you also did something kind of interesting before that that division was shut down, and, and that was uh, what has come to be known as dual scrolling, I guess. You were able to split the, the two backgrounds and move them sort of like as parallax or something? Yeah, I, well, I split the screen uh, horizontally in in the upper half and lower half, and then one would be controlled by one player, and the bottom half would be controlled by another player. Oh, I see. Okay. When when I heard, first heard about this, I sort of got a ball blazer type of uh, uh, image in my head. I don't know if you recall that. That was a game for the 5200 uh, out of uh, uh, George Lucas, uh, Slayer of Pinball. George Lucas, he made that title. Right, right, yeah, that's that's the kind of idea, except it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a 3D perspective, it was an overhead gotcha. perspective. Right on. Are you involved with any gaming now, like behind the scenes or just in your own personal living room? Uh, I, have, I have a Wii. Oh, okay, very good. And a Nintendo DS, and I, I still play games sometimes. The Wii and DS, and very huge in Japan still, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I wrote in my spare time. I wrote a 3D version of the old Intellivision biplanes game. Oh, oh, great! So, and on the PC, and I've I've been talking to Keith Robinson of Intellivision Inc. about that, but so far we haven't done anything with it yet. Cool, cool. Yeah, is he involved with the Intellivision Lives movement that's online now? Uh, yeah, he he bought the rights to he he was an Intellivision programmer and he bought the rights to the Intellivision essentially. Yeah, it's a, it's a great site and it's something it's it really shows you know you you can take over things that are being emulated you know whatever the reasons people want to emulate things but you you can take that back as as um, intellectual property and make it successful and I think Intellivision Lives uh, the website is a great example of that. Yeah, I think he's done a great job of promoting it and, and, and trying to give people the best experience of playing those games that he, he can do. Great system. Uh, we just talked about uh, the, the three must-have titles for that, uh, the Intellivision, on uh, last episode. Dave, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for telling us about Clax. We love Clax. We, we've oh, talked, we mentioned it about definitely over the last three episodes of We Talk Games. It's definitely a game that uh, we can go back to again and again. Thank you so very much for being a part of We Talk Games. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much. Bye now. Nice to talk, talk to you. Thank you.
sometimes I have to pinch myself. This is really great. I, I, these are the people that made it happen for me when I go boop, boop, boop. All right, another fantastic interview, Starcade Double Bubble. Hey, how'd you know what I'm doing? I'm shooting harpoons at Bubbles right now. <laughs> Buster Brothers. Hey, why don't we ever get Capcom? That's, you know, that's one company that we never had anyone from, I think. I'm on it. All right, man. Hey, if you like what you hear, tune in. I do. Okay. To go over to We Talk Games, wetalkgames.com. Our name is our address. Become part of that social community because it's such a teeny, tiny, tight-knit community uh, compared to our listenership. It's silly. And your voice will be heard by all of us here and there. And listen to our We Talk Games council slash interview show and our weekly bobbles. We'll talk to you next time on Interview Starkey. Bye. Bye. Bye.